by me showing up fully as my whole self, I free someone else to do the same. And when they finally get the courage to do it, then they free someone else to do the same. And the next thing you know, we're all free. And isn't that the purpose? To be free? To be us? Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical insights shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson, the world's first DEI operating system. Comment, like, and subscribe on all platforms. Let's get back to the episode. All right, Mark Travis Rivera. Um, I mean, I, I know you as an incredible DEI leader, someone who has a really um, an awesome TEDx talk and, I mean, an incredible fashion sense. But for people that don't necessarily know you as much, um, could you let the listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. Hello, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, I am super excited. My name is Mark Charles Rivera. I use he, him pronouns. I am a Latinx, queer, disabled, gender conforming man. Uh, I originally uh, was born in Miami, grew up in Jersey, now call Atlanta, Georgia home. I am the professional storyteller. That's the name of my company, uh, where I do a lot of consulting, speaking engagements, training facilitations, and coaching for speakers and those who are looking to live a life that fully aligns with their calling. Um, so that's a bit about what I do. In terms of DEI work, um, my specialty is in communications and marketing within DEI and how to make sure that your marketing is inclusive and representative. Um, but also I do a lot of tra- trainings and facilitations on intersectionality, uh, mental health in the workplace, disability inclusion. Um, I talk about intersectionality in terms of race, gender, sexuality. I talk about shame as well, how that intersects with shame when you're a multi-marginalized person. And I also focus a lot on um, really thinking about how one can be authentic in the workplace, how one shows up fully. Uh, So all of that kind of is related to the work that I do. Um, So yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. I think we're going to go in a few different directions with this conversation, um, especially because I think you are such an incredible um, multi-potentialite. You have so many different interests passions um, and skills. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit about allyship. Um, I think allyship is a huge topic. And I know that you reposted something that really resonated to me, with me. Um, to me, I think um, it represents allyship in a beautiful way. But what's your view on allyship in general? You know, I, I think it's really interesting, right? Because I know that no social movement would ever make significant progress without having accomplices or allies or people who are willing to put their positionality, their privilege, their power on the line for the sake of equality, for the sake of equity, for the sake of inclusion, for the sake of diversity. That being said, I think that allyship has become very performative over the last couple of decades. Um, And I think that people, I always said to me, the most dangerous person in America isn't the uneducated white person in rural America who's a Trump supporter. The most dangerous person in America is the educated, well-intended, claims to be progressive and inclusive white person who knows better, but still doesn't do better. Because in order to do better, they have to put their own power and privilege and positionality on the line, right? And so I'm not interested in performative allyship. I'm not interested in transactional relationships. I'm interested in transformative connections that make sure that everyone, regardless of how they identify or where they come from, has the opportunity to, to realize happiness and freedom and liberation, right? And that doesn't happen overnight, right? America has 
um, a, a long history of having to fight for our inclusion as marginalized people. And as we talked about earlier, it's a, there's been this rolling back of our progress. Um, I think it's been, I think all this really happened. I think Trump wasn't the, the cause, he was a symptom, right? The cause was having a black president for the first time in our history for two terms. And the amount of progress he was able to usher in during those eight years, I think it has really led to a white lash, right? And so that's really interesting thinking about like what allyship means. And I think that, you know, we have to call in people, not call them out, but call them in and say, listen, you want to be a part of this work. You want to do the change. You want to, it starts with you, right? How you view people like us, how you go into certain spaces and take on this white savior complex or use your gender as a woman, even though you're white, to justify why you should be leading DEI efforts, right? And so all of these things that are nuanced and complex, I, I really think that um, we have to start talking about, really talking about what it means to exist at multiple intersections and how some intersectional, intersectional identities gives you privilege and others marginalize you. You know, and I think it's really important, right? So you as a black man are marginalized, right? Um, but you as a, a black man who is identified as heterosexual, right? It's a very different experience than a black man who identifies as queer, right? And so I, I wanna make that distinction there because while you both are oppressed for your race and your gender in certain ways, right? Or you're privileged by your gender in certain ways, the sexuality piece really is a distinguishing factor between your experience of equality and equity and a black man who is queer right or a black man who is transgender and queer right and so i think that's really important to distinguish like there's levels to this ish you know it's not it's not a, a simple complex it's a complex layered structure that is very interesting because sometimes um because then sometimes you may introduce um religion or even like skin tone into that conversation as well and it could change depending on where you are um and you mentioned something really um it was interesting um, about equity versus equality and that there's a major difference there. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I love that visual that was sharing, being shared around on social media. I don't know if you ever saw it, the one with the baseball field, little kids with the crates. And it was, uh, there was different, the kids had different heights. And so the kid who was tall enough to see past the fence didn't need a crate. The people who were shorter, right? So they all had one crate essentially. Right. So, but the person who's already tall doesn't need it, but he had one because equality is everyone getting the same thing. Right. And then the other mm -hmm. side of that graphic you saw really, which was equity that the person who didn't need the crate didn't get a crate, but the other people who were shorter got different number of crates in order for them to see over the fence. Right. And then I think there's another version of that where justice is removing the fence altogether so that everyone can see from where they are. Right. And I think that we have put a lot of emphasis on equality, especially as LGBTQ people, when we talk about marriage equality, right? But when you when you really look into it, can disabled LGBTQ people get married without losing their disability benefits? No, right? So that is a inequity that was brought on by this, this, this through the guise of marriage equality. But we all have the right to get married. But if you're disabled and queer and want to get married, you risk losing your much needed healthcare benefits and, and, and SSI and disability benefits, right? So there's nuance to that, right? And I think that equality has led a lot of people astray. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and I mean, I guess we'll switch it up for a second. Uh, 
your fashion sense is something that I noticed right off the bat. <laughs> How did you develop your, your sense of style? Uh, you know, it's so funny you say that because I always say, like, I don't like shopping, but I, I love dressing up. I love, I think gender, uh, Judith Butler in college, I studied women's and gender studies and Judith Butler's theory around genderized performance really resonated with me and this idea that we just perform gender. And so that's why I can be a man who wears makeup and dresses and heels and skirts and, and feel very comfortable in my manhood because I'm secure in who I am. And I think that a lot of people um, really struggle with that because they see it as an affront to patriarchy, right? Which is understand that, that the male dominance, the masculine energy of a man makes him dominant and, and, and all powerful, right? And then here I am bucking against that system by being feminine presenting but still being very alpha and aggressive and dominant in, in, in the nature of my life, right? That I'm, I don't, my, the conditioning I experienced as a child to be a boy didn't just go away because I became feminine, right? I still have that social conditioning, right? The scripts that say, speak up, demand that you take up space. Don't let these people silence you, right? And I just happen to be feminine, right? And I don't view my femininity as a form of weakness. I see it as a source of power because all my life I grew up with women who are feminine and powerful and strong and resilient. And so I never associated femininity with less than. I always associated it with strength, endurance, stamina, the ability to endure hardship and still rise up the next morning and do what you have to do for your family. Because that's all that was ever uh, displayed for me growing up in the single mother household, right? And so I love being feminine. I love being a man. I love my body as it is. And I think a lot of people, they really struggle with that because when the rise of transgender and non-binary identities came to the lexicon, people assumed that I was just in an in-between phase. That this is all. Oh, just you're just in the you're in a phase right now. You're gonna transition eventually. No, this isn't a phase. This is who I am. And I think that a lot of time people are so uncomfortable with the in-between, the gray, that they want to put you in these binary boxes: gay, straight, man, woman, right? That they don't understand that identity is one starts with the person, how they identify. I identify as, right? It's not you identity, it's identity, right? And that identity runs on a spectrum. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we minimize, when we um, disengage, and when we decide that this person isn't man enough or good enough for this job or this position because they are different. And Pabed Martinez, who was just a guest on my show on LinkedIn, um, uh, he's the founder of Plural, which is about redefining professionalism, a media company. And he and I were talking last week on The Shift. And I remember um, as I was talking about with him, I realized that like so much of my conditioning around my workplace culture has been around my presentation. Don't wear your nails to the interview. Wear a suit and tie, right? Don't wear a dress and heels to work. People are not going to respect you. They're going to think that you're smart enough because they're going to be so distracted by how you look that they won't be able to hear you. And I had to push back on those people and say, it is not my job to, to help someone else recognize my competencies or my intellect or the good contributions I can make for an organization. If they don't see my value, that is not the space or company I want to be in. Right. And like just recently, I, I was on another podcast doing an interview and I talked about an experience I had working at a national nonprofit um, that I quit after three months. Because the white women, all white women leadership at the time, um, it's still primarily white, but they have a, a VP of a, a woman of color who's a VP of inclusion now. And there is this idea that these white women all claim to be progressive, 
all claimed to be democratic leaning, but they were maintaining white supremacy culture in the nonprofit industrial complex. By denying me the position I actually applied for, that I was qualified for, that I that I hit all the criteria for, and then offering it to another person who then declined it and then reopening the search again, and then offering it to someone who admittedly admitted they didn't have a lot of supervision experience, which is the, one of the reasons they said I didn't get it, that I didn't, have, I didn't have enough supervision experience, right? And I know how white people, especially in, the, in corporate America and these, these nonprofit spaces, gatekeep, right? And so, you know, you want all the glory of having someone like me on your team page, on your website, but you don't want to take responsibility for nurturing and giving me opportunity and making a way for someone like me who historically has had to work extra hard just to get this far in my career because of people like you, right, who gatekeep. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge. And so, you know, I think it's um, it's a lot, right, Robert? It's, it's, it's so much to unpack. And, you know, I always say, I'm sure there are opportunities I've missed because of the way I look, because of the way I present myself, because of the thought leadership that I share on LinkedIn and my newsletter and social media. But I've had to come to grips with the rooms I don't get invited to are not the rooms I'm meant to be in. And sometimes not getting invited the first time doesn't mean you'll never get invited, right? And so I've had to honor my truth and know that my purpose in this world is to have is to tell my story so that others all over the place they connect to an aspect of it and then tell their story. Right. Yeah, I think you're obviously an incredible storyteller. I don't know if I don't know if I have actually answered the fashion thing. I just realized I'm on a tangent. I'm so sorry. So you I don't think I'm a fashionista per se. I don't, <laughs> but I do appreciate Jim performance. And I, and I think that what I've come to, I'm, I love Target, by the way. Target is where I get most of my stuff. And what I've come to realize, Robert, to answer that question around fashion, it's just for fun for me. You know, I don't put the budget, like sometimes I buy men's clothes, sometimes I buy women's clothes, sometimes I buy androgynous unisex clothes. I wear what looks good on me, what's flattering for me, right? And I don't care what other people think. And that to me is liberation. Just wanted to make sure I answered that part. I don't think I fully answered that. So I want to make sure I, I answered that. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And I think that's that's a superpower, um, not caring what other people think. I think it's everything that you post, everything that you, you're about, I think it's incredibly powerful. Um, and I, you know, that kind of brings me back to one of the things that you mentioned. You, you talked I just a want to say, about, Robert, if I can, oh. Robert, sorry, I just want to interject for a second because yeah. I think that I, it'd be dishonest for us to frame it as in, you know, not caring what people think. It's not that I don't care. Okay. It's that I don't allow what they think to stop me from being true to myself. That every day mm. I make decisions to show up and be seen and heard for exactly who I am. That authenticity is a daily choice for me. Right? And some days it's harder than others. Some days I feel like, God, I'm never going to belong. You know, I'm always going to be the friend, never the lover because I'm too friend. Right? Or I'm never gonna be taken seriously as a leader because X, Y, Z, right? So it's not that I don't care what people think, it's that I don't allow the perceptions of others have on me or about me to stop me from showing up and honoring who I am because I'd rather die living in my truth than live a lie. When the life expectancy of a trans person, a trans woman of color or gender non-conforming or non-binary person of color who's friend presenting used to be, I think, 35 for black and brown trans women. Now it's like 27, right? And so I don't take it for granted that I'm still alive. When people like me who are feminine, who 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 
buck against this patriarchal system, this white supremacy culture, right? Who are daring to show up and be seen and heard, who demand to be seen and heard, who requires people to respect them for who they are. It's not that I don't care. It's just I don't allow that the need to care to 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 prioritize the need to honor who I am and to love myself. Yeah, that's powerful. Because um, I think sometimes, even when it comes to posting something, some people are like, oh, "My <laughs> this or that, I don't want to post that." And I think that um, I don't want to say lack of courage, but um, it, it takes a lot of courage to to do anything. I think um, where you know a lot of people are going to see it. But um, when you talk a little bit about your facilitations and the things that you do around shame and intersectionality, um, could you talk about the experience you take um, the co companies and, and, and your clients through? Yeah, and so a lot of what I do as a facilitator, trainer, speaker, um, is it depends on what the client needs, right? So all my training and facilitation is customized to the client. I don't script my talks, whether it's a keynote or a workshop, nothing is scripted. I have talking points. I have an outline for my workshops that tells me what activities I'm going to be doing. Um, but I really believe the reason why I'm so appreciated as a speaker and consultant is because I'm able to respond to the room, whether it's virtual or in person. And part of my spiritual belief, my faith-based belief is that I am simply a vessel. And if I go in there with a script, I become an actor performing a monologue and that's not who I am or what I do right and that's not I think in my opinion the best way to to evoke change meaningful change in an organization people can feel when it's scripted people can feel when you're just saying the same thing over and over and you're charging 10 15 20 thousand dollars per speech every time you use that same monologue right this isn't in Broadway I'm not paid to perform the same show eight times a week one, it would be boring for me as a speaker. I'd get really tired of it. And two, it wouldn't be honest. It wouldn't be able to respond to what's happening in real time in the same way. And so for me, I think what people really value is my ability to use storytelling, right? To weave a story and also weave a real concept, right? Intersectionality by Kimberly Crinsall, right? The idea of patriarchy, um, gender, sexuality, disability, um, marketing, communications, right? Branding, thought leadership development. Um, and using all of these things and telling it not in a lecture kind of way, but in a way that tells a full story, that gives them imagery to see in their heads, to imagine what's possible on the other side of diversity, equity, and inclusion when done correctly, right? And also a lot of people call me inspirational, um, a lot of people call me motivational, which is fine. I don't call myself a motivational speaker because I think that the degenerizes um, the amount of time I spent to educate myself and to train and to learn this material that I cover. Um, there are people who are motivational speakers and kudos to them. They deserve all that praise that they get for just telling their story. But it's not just about telling my story, right? Even though telling my story is a big part of it, I tell other people's stories. I pull in other references. I pull in other material that are both data-driven, research-based, and anecdotal, right? And so it's about being able to tie in the art of storytelling to unlock the power that telling our stories has and other people then give them the courage to tell their own story. And it becomes this ripple effect, right? By me showing up fully as my whole self, I free someone else to do the same. And when they finally get the courage to do it, then they free someone else to do the same. And the next thing you know, we're all free. And isn't that the purpose? To be free? 
to be us. That's so true. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you said that you don't need a script. I'm, a, I'm one of those people that turns into mush without a script sometimes, <laughs> you know, and um, I, I don't know, I guess I speak for that, those people. Um, but how do you step on stage and <clears throat> let the information flow out of you without necessarily, I guess it's kind of like stream of consciousness, but how do you how it's not full that? stream of consciousness. I mean, there's an outline, really? right? I have I have outline. Okay. I, can, I can share one with you through email. It's this right. idea that I have talking points, right? But I'm not reading the talking points. Sometimes I have to, to talking points. Sometimes I just say, like, for example, I'm going to pull out my iPad because I have um, a, a recent outline from a workshop I did this weekend. Nice. And in that workshop, in that outline, I legit was like, okay, here are some definitions, statistics that I pulled from, right? And that was it. And that's all it was. It was, it's about, okay, I'm defining shame, for example. What is Brady Brown's definition of shame? I write that out verbatim because it's a quote, right? Then I talk about Bell Hook's framing of shame, right? And then I have the flow of the workshop and all the activities we're going to do. Because I give my clients who, who ask of it, I give them the session outline so they know what to expect, right? There are times when people just book me just to hear my life story because they're so inspired by the idea that a Latinx disabled queer genocidal person exists. There are not many stories of people like me that, that exist in the world for people to consume. And the work of the professional storyteller, my company and myself, is that we cannot become what we cannot consume the stories we hear, see, and read. Right? And I don't want another Latinx, queer, disabled, gender non-conforming boy to grow up feeling alone because he couldn't see himself reflected. Now I'll be able to look at my podcast or my TEDx talk. Now I'll be able to see other interviews I've done. Right? And hopefully he sees aspects of himself in my story, in my representation. And then that helps him tell his story. And then again, it becomes this ripple effect, right? And that is, I think, the power of our story. That others can see themselves and know what's possible. I don't want to be a role model. I'm not perfect. I'm messy. I'm 31 years old. What 31-year-old has it all figured out? I've been having my career since I was 17 years old when I started my dance company. Right, become the youngest person in the United States to create an integrated dance company for disabled and non-disabled dancers. Right, I was just posting on Instagram yesterday night when I was sad. I was like, God, all I know is my work. Since I was 17 years old, I didn't have fun in college. I was always working part-time time to pay through college and then doing all these campus activity stuff and running my dance company and starting my speaking career. I did my TEDx talk while I was still an undergrad. I spoke at Harvard and NYU while I was still an undergrad, right? And so I didn't have the luxury of being young and careless and free because I had to learn how to be young, responsible, and focused so I can make it out of where I come from, right? I started paying rent when I was 15 years old. I had my first job at 15, right? I don't know what it meant to be a kid, trying to figure out what it meant to be himself because I had to grow up faster than most people and the pressure I put on myself and the expectation of other people on me has not allowed me to just be carefree right I don't get to just say I need to take a day off because there's always something to do there's always someone reaching out to me for something right and obviously I say no to certain things if it doesn't align with my values and who I are or I said not now right I set boundaries but for a long time Robert I didn't know how to say no 
because I thought if I said no, that people would never ask me again. The scarcity mindset. And that's why people ask me, why are you so passionate about this work? It's because it's my life. My life literally depends on it. If we all stop trying to make this world a better place, you know how dangerous it would be, even more dangerous it would be? You think we have mass shootings now? Oh, forget about it. It'd be an, an everyday, other, every other day occurrence, right? The blatant bigotry would be even worse than it is now. Trump simply emboldened the base. He didn't, he didn't create the base, right? This base, this, this ideology of white supremacy culture has been around for centuries, which is why slavery began, right? Which is why the genocide of indigenous people began, right? And so we have to understand that this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, while it's become very trendy and buzzworthy over the last couple of years, unfortunately, post-George Floyd's murder, a lot of these companies are divesting from their DEI efforts now. And no one seems to be talking about that. Yeah, why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I th it seems kind it of obvious, to, but... Yeah. It goes back to being performative allyship. Yeah. They felt the pressure to perform because they know that the Black and Brown community has spending power. They know the optics of not being an organization or a company that supports um, treatment of people doesn't look good for a company, right? And even though there's a business case to be made about DEI in terms of having a more diverse representative um, community in your workplace actually makes your company a better return on investment, right? You get, you get, you're greater, more, you're more profitable. Um, you have more positive reputation with your consumers, right? And so like, you know, I love Target, but Target has become even bigger, I think, because of their reputation, because of the good that they do for the communities they serve and for how representative they are. People want to consume, especially the Generation Z, they want to spend their capitalist power supporting organizations and people who are trying to do good. And for some companies, the recession, you know, the need to cut back, they see DEI as a nice to have, not a necessary, not, not a nice thing to have, not that it's necessary for the organization to be successful. So. Yeah, and I think a lot of people um, have a lot of challenges when it comes to trying to be um, authentic and just uh, reaching their potential at work. Um, and I really loved your TEDx talk. And, you know, I just wanted to ask you, how'd you tap into your potential for that? I know you mentioned that um, you did that when you were in college. So, <laughs> oh. um, and also, also, how does that translate into the work that you do today? It's that moment. It all, it all started with the workshop I did at Harvard for the Hispanic Gay Black, Hispanic Black Gay Coalitions Conference, the Youth Empowerment Conference in Boston. And it started with, my friends who were the founders of the organization invited me to be a speaker. I came, I said yes. And at that point I had been speaking, you know, for about a year or so professionally. And it was my first time going to Harvard, first time speaking at Ivy League. And just walking on those grounds as my full self was such a moment. But then looking back at the young people who are black and brown and queer and trans and disabled all in that space. And, say, and I remember exactly what I said in that talk as if it was yesterday. It, it also helps that there's a video of it uh, on YouTube. And I also talk about it in my TEDx talk. But embracing yourself doesn't mean you have to um, like every aspect of who you are, right? Or that you have to be perfect. But embracing, I'm paraphrasing here, but embracing yourself means that you have to learn to embrace all that you are, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, 
right? The mistakes and the wins. And recognize that you are still worthy of love and belonging and opportunity, that you belong here, that you should be here, that you should have the right to exist and live out your God-given potential. And it wasn't until I learned to embrace myself after a near-death near death experience that I found my true voice. So to answer your other question about how do you just become a vessel, I am a faith-based person and I and I often, right before I go on, I say to the universe or God, whatever you want to call it, the divine, I say, please use me in this moment. Please use me as a vessel. And I ground myself before I speak and I force my ego to step aside because it's very easy to step on a stage and make it about you. When your ego is involved, you cannot be a vessel. So the moment I stop being nervous about the work is the moment I stop doing this work because it means that I'm no longer doing it for the right reasons, right? And so that connection to my faith, which has been a relationship I had to recultivate over the last couple of years because of the religious trauma in my life growing up as a kid, as a queer kid, and recognizing that I was born at five and a half months in 1991, weighing one pound. Specifically speaking, I shouldn't have survived but I did, right? And so if you believe, if your faith system tells you that you are made in the image of Christ or God or whatever you want to call it, then you have to acknowledge that there are no mistakes, right? And that you were born this way for a reason. And everything, you know, before I knew what race was as a child growing up in a black and brown community, before I understood social economic class, before I understood sexuality, I knew I was different, or my gender expression, I knew I was different because of my disability, right? I recognize other being othered because of my disability. Because someone can other me for being brown when I'm around a whole bunch of black and brown people, right? They can't other me for being poor when I'm around other poor people, right? They can't other me for being queer or journal conforming as much if I'm around other queer and journal conforming people, right? But how many people do you know exist at all these intersections, right? How many stories do you see in the media about queer LGBT people who are disabled, right? And so it's really important that we think about what it means when we build someone up. Uh, Kelly Clarkson has this song that I really love. I'm forgetting the name of the song, but she has a lyric that says, why do we build up all these idols just to tear them down? Which is why I always tell people, don't call me a role model. I'm not, I'm not anyone's role model, right? I'm just a possibility model. I wanna show you what's possible. And I learned that delivering cock when she spoke at, at a conference I spoke at as well, right? And this idea that um, I'm not telling you how to do it, how you should do it. I'm simply showing you how I did and showing how I did it so you can see what's possible when you dare to live your truth, when you dare to honor the calling of your life. You know what I mean? And that to me is my superpower, the ability to, to walk into a room as my full self, be seen and heard. And whether they like it or not, I think, and even though they don't agree with my politics or my view of things, I think people tend to respect me because I dare to show up and be seen. Even they don't like what I have to say, even they don't agree with this lifestyle per se, right? They respect the fact that I'm able to show up. And crush it every time, you know? Uh <laughs> I don't know about every time, but I, I, I'd say I have a good track record based on my client feedback, so. <laughs> That's a that's a really political answer, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honor um, answer, right? 
because you it's all about perception right you can say yeah. oh my as long as my clients are happy as long as i'm able to impact one or two people in a room that i feel like i did a good job but right. you know there are people who fundamentally disagree with my beliefs and my ideology and that's okay and they may think well because i disagree with you i don't like how you did it right or for yeah. example i spoke in vegas recently and i was telling you before we recorded how i was super nervous since i was talking a lot faster than i normally would because i was so nervous that was my usual audience and so just really understanding that, right? No, knowing that like there are times when I'm speaking too fast because I'm Puerto Rican and I'm from Jersey, right? And that's how we talk. And there are times when, you know, I'm not as clearly clear-minded. Sometimes like, I lose my train of thought or sometimes I'll start off as being a vessel and then something happens in the space that throws me off and I can't always recover the same way. And so there are different perceptions of me, but I would say like 99% of the time, uh, my clients have been very happy with the outcome of the work. And so I'm very, very proud of that. That's awesome. Yeah, and so I think that it's, uh, I know I'm just feeling, uh, I, I hear it. Um, and so I'm just, you know, yeah, I'm, I recognize that too, you know, like my mother doesn't get what I do. So growing up, just to give you a funny story, growing up, I used to get decent grades, but the teachers would always put a comment on the report card that says, Marcus, lovely, lovely kid, but he talks too much. Or Mark is very creative, but he talks too much. Or Mark is very studious, but he talks too much. I was always told I was talking too much. So one day on Facebook a couple years ago, um, there was like a meme. What's one thing you used to get in trouble for in school that now you make a career out of? And I, I used to get in trouble all the time for speaking. My, and I, I tagged all my teachers who I'm friends, Facebook friends with from, from grammar school all the way through college. And I'm like, yeah, I remember when you used to tell me I used to talk too much and now I get paid for a living to speak. And my mother, you know, never graduated high school, never went to college, uh, was a teen mom um, when she had my sister and then in her early 20s when she had me. You know, this idea, this notion around like, she couldn't wrap her head around that people were paying me, especially how much they were paying me to speak. And you see me speak in New Jersey live to like young kids and college students, but she still doesn't fully get it. Like, she's just like, people really pay you to, to speak? And just, I'm like, yeah, mom. She said, we used to get in trouble in school all the time for this. I said, no, it worked out, huh? Ain't you glad? And ain't God great that I've been able to use my gifts to build a life that I always wanted? And that's why when I was telling you earlier about how tired and emotional I feel today after this long weekend of like traveling coast to coast and speaking at different places, even though I'm tired, I'm never not grateful because I'm finally living the life I always wanted to live. And there are many people who come from where I come from who don't get to live out their dreams who have their dreams deferred by circumstance and fear and their doubt and violence. But somehow, a little boy from Patterson, New Jersey, a little crippled boy who shouldn't have been able to become a choreographer and a dancer and start his own company, would somehow end up on billboards in LA, New York, and Miami for Latinx Heritage Month one year, just miles, a couple miles away from Fetty Wap's billboard. Betty Wap is also from Patterson, New Jersey. He's a rapper, right? Victor Cruz, the former Giants football player, is also from Patterson, New Jersey, right? And so, historically, they're not they're not people from Patterson who are like me, who make it to this level of my success as a creative entrepreneur. And I don't take that for granted. I think that, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility. I have been given this gift. I've been given the opportunity to walk into rooms that people where I come from will never even be able to envision, right? 
And how dare I take that for granted? How dare I, how dare I even consider not doing this work, even, even though I'm having a personal hard day, right? It never crossed my mind to cancel or reschedule this interview. It never crossed my mind to cancel my other meetings today, even though all I want to do is curl in bed and watch TV and binge out, right? Because I have a calling that is greater than any temporary feeling or state that I'm in right now. I totally hear you, Mark. Um, man, I, I know that we were, I think in part two, we'll talk about uh, the other parts of your life too. Um, <laughs> but I know that we're at time, but you know, for no, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to keep going. If you want to just make it a part two episode, I have some time, so don't feel you have to rush off, but I, I want to make oh. sure you let the conversation complete for part one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like it's, it's really good. Um, this is, I mean, this is fantastic. You share so many gems, um, around all of the things that you, all of your, your philosophies, honestly. Um, I just really appreciate that. But for people that want to get in touch with you, um, how should they go about doing that? So my website's under construction right now, um, but uh, I will send Robert my link tree that gives you the links to all the things, social media, newsletter, LinkedIn, um, what else? Upcoming events I'm doing. Uh, so I don't know, I'm sure when this episode is coming out, so feel free to edit this out, but I'm on March 20th, which is World, Storytel World Storytelling Day. I'm doing a workshop for aspiring and emerging speakers. I think I told you about this, Robert. It's gonna be a 90 minute workshop where I give people my philosophy and approach to storytelling and how to become a speaker and my framework for developing speakers. Um, it's a, a workshop that's it's meant to um, serve as a pipeline, for potentially new clients um, into my coaching speaking, my speaking, my speaker coaching program. And so um, that's coming up and I have a lot of other stuff coming up that I can't talk about just yet, but if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll be the first to ever hear something because I try to save all my announcements for Thursdays. My newsletter goes out weekly and then I put it on social media after. Um, so I really try to honor the fact that people who sign up for my newsletter are getting inclusive insights and personal narratives and experiences and insights into my life that I'm not sharing with everyone else first. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really powerful just to mention that. Sign up for my newsletter, you'll love it. And anyone who signs up for my newsletter and signs up for the speaking engagement outreach list will receive 10% off my speaker fee for one engagement, virtual or, or in person, um, in 2023. So that's an incentive to have people sign up my newsletter and, and choose to opt into the, sub the segmented audience of speaking engagement outreach. Um, so that's a way to connect with me. LinkedIn is always a good place to connect with me. And uh, I always encourage people like, don't just hit follow. If you think I'm gonna get along with you, you think we align in the work and the values, send me a connection request because I'm gonna be able to see your content as well. And I won't be able to see if I'm not, if I if you just follow me, I don't know who you are. So uh, feel free to send me a message or connect with me. I'm very open to connection that is transformative and not transactional. That's awesome, Mark. Um, and so, you know, if there was one action that you would urge our listeners to to take away from today's episode, um, what action should they should they do after listening to your episode? Make the daily decision to show up, to be seen, and to be heard for exactly who you are. It won't always be easy. It won't always be comfortable, and there are risks involved but the reward is far greater than any risk that you may experience. Because when you learn to be fully yourself, you would know what it means to be truly free. Can't end it any better than that. Mark Travis Rivera, thank you so much for joining us for the Voices of Inclusion Robert, podcast. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Be well.
Thank you, you too. Did you like this? Subscribe to the Voices of Inclusion podcast to hear secrets from incredible DEI professionals. Don't forget to go to matheson.io to connect with us so we can help you develop your DEI strategy no matter where you are on your journey. We'll catch you on the next episode.